If uh, you've been with us the last little while, um, you'll know pre-Easter we've been very loosely following kind of the same trajectory um, that we began a few weeks before Easter, um, looking at that final journey that Jesus took to Jerusalem with his disciples. And Jesus died, and it wasn't just that Jesus died, it was that death itself died, and that Jesus cried out, it is finished. Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilling that prophecy from Ezekiel that I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God was suddenly no longer had to be distant. God could get close. And it said the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, as if God's saying, I will be separate no more. And it marked a completely and wholly different paradigm for how God would relate to humankind. And Jesus' death was a new age of the kingdom, the age of the spirit. The church was born and the mission of God would now be worked out through an imperfect people, saved by grace through the power of his spirit at work within them. And so that's the backdrop of kind of what we're looking at today when we dive into uh, a passage um, from the first letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. But the thing is, we don't live at this kind of cosmic, eternal, universe-level view, do we? Much of life feels much more lived amongst the weeds, so to speak, in the unremarkable, in the day-to-day -day details of living and working and studying. And yet, we know that despite that reality, that God continues that kingdom journey regardless. And you see, unless we take moments to remember what's going on a little above, uh, above the weeds, there's a real temptation to believe that that is kind of all there is. And trying to figure out how to do church, it's really difficult, in case any of you have not noticed. It's so easy to get wrapped up into the weeds of detail and activity and a lot of opinions. And we lose sight of what the power of God in the kingdom is really wanting to do in us and amongst us. So a bit of background. We're in to Corinth. It was a very cosmopolitan, intellectually alert, materially prosperous, morally corrupt, indulgent of every sort of desire. And what we know is that Paul went to teach there. He turned up at the synagogue thinking, well, that's where the Jews are. I guess we'll go to the synagogue. And they kicked him out. So he decided to go next door to a, a guy called Justice House, who that became his preaching base. And although it says that the synagogue leader and his family and household actually believed, broadly speaking, there were not a lot of Jewish converts um, at that time, despite many of the Corinthians believing, and it says being baptized. But essentially, the church was established, a moderately Gentile church. And Paul stayed there a while, and then he moved on. And sometime later, we find that Paul had written them a letter, giving him a general update of how they're getting on, as well as seeking various clarifications um, and questions about doctrine and theology. Now, we don't know what was in that letter. What we have, we have Paul's response to that letter. And this is him responding to them. And broadly speaking, his big topics... What's Paul's responding is around the worldliness and sexual impurity among them. 
He's challenging their divisions and a bit of a prevailing quarrelsome culture. And first and foremost, this is a letter directed at reformation of conduct, as uncool as that is to talk about. But he's trying to set right these disorders, which the Corinthians saw as not a big deal, which actually he saw as grave sins. So let me just read. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 to 11. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not... You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kind of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. Now, spirituality and divination were common part of the ancient world. Those in touch with the divine, so to speak, would behave in unpredictable ways. They'd throw themselves around. Um, They'd behave in kind of frenzied ways. And in many ways, enthusiasm was the mark of a spiritual person. But it's interesting because Paul says, verse 1, I do not want you to be uninformed. Don't be led astray. Don't pursue the manifestation. Don't simply mimic. Don't just copy what you see around you. You see, when Paul talks about spiritual gifts, the normal, the Greek word for gift in most contexts is charismata. And it's the same root that we have as grace or charis, which points to a freeness and a general sense of God's good gifts. Theologian Adam Clark defines spiritual gifts quite helpfully as gracious endowments leading to miraculous results through the extraordinary influences of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into some detail in a moment, but Paul agrees that the spectacular spiritual gifts have their place, that all are necessary, that all are good, and they all have their place. But it's interesting that he doesn't afford them preeminent place. That place belongs to love, which Paul clearly lays out in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 13. But you see, Paul's overarching point in these first few verses, is pointing to the lordship of Jesus as the touchstone, so to speak. What he's saying is if if the exercise of spiritual gifts don't make for the lordship of Christ, and they don't lead to wonder and to worship, then they're not of God. I remember when, back in the 90s, I must have been about 14, um, I went to a New Frontiers church, and it was right at the, the height of when what got called the Toronto Blessing was starting to pop up. Um, and for, for those of you who don't know, that's a, broadly speaking, that was a kind of a season of unusual physical phenomena, and it was often in the charismatic kind of church circles. 
And I remember going to Bible Week when I was 14. Um, and it was the height of this, and New Frontiers were enjoyed that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I went along to this cattle shed with 5,000 other 14-year-olds, um, which stank, not because of the kids, but because of what was in it beforehand. And I remember my mum was very, very faithful, and she loved Jesus, loved the Holy Spirit, but only wanted, didn't want any of the hype. And I remember she'd say to me, James, you can you go up for prayer if you want. If they offer to pray for you, go up for prayer. But you just say to your, you just pray to yourself, Jesus, I want the fullness of whatever you have for me. Nothing more, nothing less. And I was like, okay, you know, I was like pinned in my blazer or something. And, um, and I remember going up, you know, I mean, I can't remember much about being 14, but I do remember going up for prayer and I just remember an overwhelming sense of love. Like I knew God loved people, but I didn't really know he loved me. You know, I, I hadn't experienced that fierce revelation of how much love he had for me. You know, that he knew me and still liked me. That I could always know of, I'd have his full affection. That his grace for me was absolute, regardless of my continued failings. And I remember the feeling of walking back to my tent. You know, I can feel it as if it was yesterday. And it's a really significant moment in my testimony, at least. And as cliche as it sounds, and I don't mean it lightly, my inner life was literally never the same again after that encounter of God through his Holy Spirit. And you see, spiritual gifts, they've definitely been a source of much debate you know, much of our denominationalism and our stylistic differences come from probably having to talk, to, probably from talking about them way more than we need to. That's probably controversial in its own. Anyway, um, email Zach, not me. Um, but no, broadly speaking, we've, we've, we, we've kind of characterized them and categorized them almost into like two camps. Categories are definitely our idea, they're not God's idea, but we're simpler beings. And so it seems you have kind of like the remarkable sign gifts, like healing and tongues and prophecy. And then we have kind of the non-sign gifts, more like preaching and teaching and administration, kind of the helps, um, etc. Now, I imagine there's a bit of a spectrum here. We all come from different backgrounds with different church experiences, different, been under different teachings, we've read different books that will have shaped our preconceptions of what we bring to this passage of scripture. Some of us might feel really skeptical and uncomfortable at the very notion of spiritual gifts. You know, we're more of a fruits of the spirit kind of person. I prefer the love, joy, peace bits. Others of us will have had, had a tendency to over fixate on the more spectacular sign gifts. Now we'll never know exactly what questions and clarifications the church put to Paul. But based on his response here, it does seem that he's bringing something of a correction towards either dismissing them completely or becoming overly fixated on them. And moving on to verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good, but expressed in varied and sometimes mysterious ways. It's, it's quite evident from the, from the backdrop of what uh, spirituality was considered back then and what Paul's saying that the Corinthians had come to regard spiritual gifts as a matter of pride that had caused some division amongst them. And Paul's clearly saying that this is wrong. 
So although there's diversity in the endowments the Spirit gives, it's the same Spirit. It's God's same great divine purposes at work through them all. You know, God does not fight himself. See, see, the first two verses, the first two words, sorry, of verse 7 is to each. It's not a few, it's not to a few, it's not to some, it's to each. Each of us have some gifts from God. And manifestation means something public and open to which other people can perceive. You can't have manifestation and not see it or sense it. The reality is each of us, if we've invited the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we've accepted Jesus' offer for forgiveness, we've got something to contribute. Something sacred, something unique and something glorious that speaks of God's creativity and his mercy. And some of you, I imagine, do doubt that. You see your failings, you know your sin. We compare ourselves to those around us. We apply a human degree of measure, or oh, they're a spiritual, more spiritual than me. But just a quick encouragement, jumping back to verse 3. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying, is not saying that you can't physically say the words, Jesus is Lord, but what he's saying is you can only utter them with full meaning if under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The fact that you are drawn to Jesus at all is a mark of his Holy Spirit within you. The fact that you want to find out more, the fact that you stick around, the fact that it kind of nags away at you, is evidence that the power of the power of God at work in your heart. And I think that's encouraging, or at least it should be. And then on to verse 8. We find a list of some specific gifts, notably wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. But we shouldn't be thinking of this as exhaustive, because actually when you look at the Greek, it's not even that well defined. They're definitely not written to be an exhaustive, precise list. Paul didn't write them to be read that way. There are other lists Paul wrote. He wrote some in verse 28 at the end of the chapter, and he wrote others in Romans and Ephesians. And interestingly, the only gift that is in all of these places is prophecy. Now, I don't think... Paul would have wanted us to double down and get forensic on specific gifts, or he honestly would have written better lists. If I, if I need to remember something, get a list right, I take a lot more care with my lists. So I don't think he's giving us to fixate on too many specifics, but rather draw attention of how the power of God can manifest and work through a community of varied people. How the church is built and how he unites us into the mission of God. And so the question has to be, are we open to the varied power of God in our lives and in our hearts? Are we fully welcoming of the Holy Spirit in your life and what he wants to do? That is your contribution to being part of this mysterious family of spirit-empowered um, church. Because the reality is the workings of God will always be a bit unpredictable. Most of us love control. Jesus doesn't, God doesn't really indulge that. He kind of likes to keep us on our toes. He does have a habit of doing new things, even in ways that we can't quite figure out. But as we come towards the end, you can forget everything I've already said. That's, 
in many ways, it's, it's not that relevant. But I don't, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. But if you have to remember one thing, just remember this. The Holy Spirit is our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is our inheritance. It says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You see, the reason Jesus chose the cross, the reason why our sin was a problem, was because he could not get close to us. But he did so, so that he could. That we could enjoy and know God. That we could know him tangibly and personally through the Holy Spirit within us. If we're not living consciously in the spirit, if not pursuing the gifts that he's wanting to give us, salvation really hasn't had, we're not living in the full purpose of what God intended. The whole point of Jesus dying is that we get God, that he gets close to us, that we can know him. It's not so we can come to church, honestly, that this is not a good reason to come to church. Remember, these are good gifts, charis, grace, blessings from God that bring our hearts joy and life. And yet I do think sometimes some of us perhaps have become a bit more spectators of that blessing than participants. You know, we think, oh, it's for other people. You know, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm doing okay. Thanks. And some of us need challenge on that. Because we're missing out. God made us to know him through the Holy Spirit. That's why he forgave us. His desire to, to commune with us in our hearts was so strong that he decided, I'm going to send my son to die for that. It's almost like winning the lottery, not cashing in. It's that kind of illogical, you know, you've literally got a winning lottery ticket and you're like, nah, I'm all right, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. That's, that's, that's the best analogy I could come up with. So will we open ourselves more to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in us? The first step, to be honest, is letting him love you. Or letting him remind us that he loves us. And if you feel stuck in that for whatever reason, we'd love to just pray for you afterwards. We'd just love to pray the love of God, that revelation of not just knowledge, but revelation. There's a huge difference between knowledge and revelation. I had information growing up as a Christian, but I hadn't had that revelation. I didn't know it was for me. I hadn't heard him for me. Or maybe we're stuck with bitterness or unforgiveness, and we need the power of God to change our hearts. The Holy Spirit's got the power to do that. Similarly, most of us, most of, the, of this stuff that we've just read has to be lived and worked out and enjoyed together in community, in relationship, in smaller groups. But if some of us, if we're honest, are, it's very easy for our gathering and meeting together to, to, to tip into being not much more than Bible study. Now don't misunderstand me, we need a lot of Bible study. That's another sermon, but it's not that this doesn't let me preach about Bible study. But that's not all we need. And if, if, you, if, you, you know, if you're reading those gifts, you're like, oh, our, our community doesn't, we're not practicing and exercising and pressing into those as much as we could. You know, talk to Adele and Zach and Naomi and they'll find you some useful resources. And I do get it because, to be honest, it's easier and less awkward and more introvert-friendly to stick with theory and information. It's easier to control what's going on. 
But if we're not encouraging each other in the spirit, we're not, and we're not exercising spiritual gifts, we're not fully equipping each other as the disciples of Jesus that we're called to be. And finally, I guess one for us all, we cannot be the church of God undertaking the mission of God without walking and relating by the power of the Spirit. Trying to do church without the Spirit is impossible. It doesn't work. It's why Jesus specifically told them to wait in Acts 1-4. He said before he ascended, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days uh, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the church is not equipped to do and fulfill the mission of God. It's not through being well-organized activity or being good at communicating or mediocre preaching or anything else that hinges on skills or competences, but through the Holy Spirit at work through a community of people fully surrendered to him. So I guess the final question for us all is how open are we to what the Holy Spirit is doing? In us, amongst us, in all his various mysterious manifestations. How are we making space to exercise those gifts among us together? Because as we spend time with him, consciously in his presence together, he'll bring a focus to the gifts that he's given us. That he's given us to build community, to build church, to encourage one another. And we'll recognize his promptings. Can we say, God, I want all you have for me in all, all its fullness? Let me pray. And the band will be up. Father, we just thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's, the fact that you can dwell within our hearts is, 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 is crazy. And Lord, yeah, we're so indifferent to that. And Father, we just want to choose to recognize that we live on in such blessed territory, Father. We, we live after the cross and the resurrection, Lord. We live in the age of the Spirit and the kingdom, Father, and we are incarnating your mission for this world and our city, Lord. And we just want to surrender our preconceptions, uh, our baggage, our lack of faith, our numbness. And Father, we invite you just to bring us alive again, Lord, bring our hearts to life again by your spirit. Lord, we want to see your power manifest in this place for the glory of your name. Lord, we want to see your glory. Lord, all we want to do in this place is make you look great to a city that desperately needs grace, that desperately needs revelation, that desperately needs hope. And so, Spirit, we, we, we present ourselves willingly again this morning as vessels to be transformed that we might go forward with your power. Amen.